What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Hi, this is Josh Marshall, and this is the Josh Marshall Podcast. Today, we are going to talk with Cass Sunstein. Cass is a a professor at Harvard University. He is one of the most uh, quoted, sort of formative, uh, sort of uh, legal scholars, uh, public intellectuals uh, of of recent uh, decades. He also served in the Obama administration, I think, for, for most of the first term. And he has a book out about impeachment. It's called Impeachment, A Citizen's Guide. And unlike a lot of books out about impeachment now, which are sort of briefs in in one direction or, you know, kind of like Alan Dershowitz's ninth book about <laughs> why impeachment absolutely sucks and is, an, an, you know, under no circumstances at all uh, reasonable for Donald Trump. And obviously a lot of anti-Trump books uh, about impeachment. Uh, th- this book presents itself as looking at the history of why there is this thing, impeachment, and um, why is it there? Why is it in the Constitution? And, uh, you know, the Constitution has a, has a, a, a passage in it that basically says you're going to do a census every 10 years. Right. It doesn't say it like as a, as a suggestion or <laughs> yeah. something like that. It's like one it of these... It would be a good idea to do that, yeah. Yeah, it's right. one of these just sort of absolute things. There's going to be a census every 10 years, and that's going to be the the basis, the sort of the root from which the federal representation is is, is derived from. Uh, and with impeachment, you have this phrase, high crimes and, and, and misdemeanors, which from, uh, you know, contemporary 21st century English, like high crimes isn't a thing. Like we don't, you know, there's, 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 we have felonies right. and we have, uh, misdemeanors is a thing, obviously, but, misdi- yeah. but it all, and, but it's sort of the reverse, you right. know, cause people talk about misdemeanors like, as like, like a moving level, violation right, right. or something, you know, something like that. Yeah. So it kind of, it's this kind of archaic phrase, which, which is not intuitive at all in terms of, uh, contemporary English usage. And oftentimes people, approach it as kind of like, here's what I think it means. And, right. you know, kind of like, who cares what you think it means? Because yep. you, know, you know, none of us have outside of the history, none of us have any idea what it means. It doesn't mean anything, right? Um, so the history is is the grounding. And that's what that book, uh, this book is about. So we're about to talk to um, Cass Sunstein about that. But before we do, so uh, David, David Tainer, uh, my co-host is here. Hey, Josh. And we're just coming off, hey, we're just coming off... Uh, Two, long, two nights of debates. Two long nights. We're all yeah. feeling a little bit fatigued, but right. we're hanging in there. So, you know, we had we had this, uh, and and it's it's funny because um, I kind of feel like I think I think it's it's a good moment to talk about impeachment because I feel like it has. I don't know, maybe because the debates were coming up, maybe because everybody has been sort of focused on what's going on in Iran and all, you know, kind of miscellaneous other things. That imp- I feel like we were talking a lot more about this impeachment question two weeks ago than yeah. we are now. It's just right. sort of, I, and I don't mean that it's it's 
it's less important now or people think it's less important now. Just that just the immediate news conversations moved on from yeah. it a bit. And correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, during the two nights of debates, the first time the American people have basically been introduced to the 20 some candidates. I mean, there were 20 between the two nights. Um I don't think anyone brought up impeachment explicitly, right? I mean, it was a lot about when we defeat Trump, yeah, when I'm I president. I, I cannot remember it coming up at, I mean, even, I don't think even the word came yeah, up. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, and the, Mueller, the Mueller report was basically non-existent from the two nights. I mean, it was obviously a lot of them. Like a subtext. Exactly. Just But yeah, I can't think of, uh, I think the Mueller report may have been, been invoked, but I don't think the word impeachment right. ever came, and it certainly wasn't like the thing, which exactly. it's been the thing, right. you know, for the last uh, uh, you know month or so, right. in sort of in, in 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 the kind of the public debate, and so I I think I think we've thought that the the first night, which it, it wasn't supposed to be structured as sort of like the 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 no chancers and the right. real candidates but it kind of ended up sort of being that way with yep. the huge exception of Elizabeth Warren right. who was maybe you know second exactly. or third after uh, after 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 Joe Biden that that was sort of you know pretty pretty positive mm-hmm. kind of you know thought it was you know, kind of a, you know, good good time was had by all. Exactly. I mean, almost all. Maybe Beto O'Rourke didn't have a good time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Julian Castro, I think, distinguished himself. Um, I, I thought Cory Booker did. Right, right. Cory Booker, you know, sorry. He, he really... Remember who else was on the stage. Exactly, yeah. Cory Booker, I, I think, sounded two, really good. Yeah, yeah, those two were the ones. I mean, obviously, Warren is doing well. Right. Uh, she's not a, a, a front, you know, she's not the front runner, but she's sort of a front runner yeah. candidate. It was interesting to hear Booker. I mean, we've seen him in committee hearings mm-hmm. in on the Senate Judiciary Committee and so on, kind of, you know, posing tough questions to to witnesses and kind of having a sharp kind of exchange. And so I think that experience maybe lent itself well to the debate stage a little bit because he yeah. came across pretty, sh- you know, he was very sharp and and effective, I thought. Well, I, you know, I think the thing about him is that if you, if um, for the last few months, there's been five candidates who either at the national level or in individual states are the ones who have significant support. And those are Biden, Sanders, Warren, Harris, and Buttigieg. Yep. And if you go back to like January, I think you would say, first of all, you probably wouldn't put Buttigieg in that category at all. Yeah. Um, and I think the great majority of people would have said Cory Booker is in that group. Mm-hmm. He's in that group with Elizabeth Warren, with uh, Kamala Harris, uh, try, you know, whatever. He'd be in that group. And it's been sort of the surprise, like, wow, he's not in that group. Right. He's down there with, like, these other guys who are, like, at, at 1% or 0% right. support. So, so a lot of recent months has been kind of like it didn't happen for him right. and kind of like you thought it would happen. Now, I'm not saying he would win, but he'd at least be like getting above 1% yeah, I mean, or something He's always had like, like pretty prominent speaking roles at the yeah. Democratic conventions. Yeah. You know, he's one of those I mean, kind star. of national he's a, figures. He's, yeah. he's, a, he's a high profile. He's in the Senate. Um, and it's sort of, you know, how is he, you know, why Kamala Harris and not him? Yep. Or certainly why, you know, Pete Buttigieg exactly, and, and, yeah. and not him. So I think he kind of got, he, he gave himself like a second chance basically right. by, by really sort of, I thought at least having a, a kind of a, 
you know, kind of a dominating role, yeah. kind of just sort of own the stage a lot. And then yesterday, we had this kind of far messier debate. Yep. Uh, much more kinetic and yeah. kind of, yeah, all over the place. Much more kinetic, a, a lot more people jumping over each other. Right. Uh, a few... I, it's funny, I was going to say different attacks, but it was really the Harris thing, yeah. that big sort of set piece yeah. where she went after Biden, not just, like, because when I think about it, I'm not, can you think, I, I, I'm not sure I can think of another case offhand where any candidate even really addressed another candidate. Yeah, I mean, Swalwell was going after Biden. Right, okay, so that's an, like, that's time an to pass the torch. Time to pass right, the, but that was his line the whole yeah, night. Right, and that. But I thought that kind of like when Pete, when when <laughs> when uh, my sense was that the sort of the virtual reaction right. was like, ah, yeah, yeah. There was yeah, a little like, bit you know, kind of dunking on him. Yeah, Swalwell was also kind of trying to trying to stir things up with Buttigieg because. Mayor, yeah. Mayor Pete was oh, talking right. about the, the, fire the police shooting. Right. Okay. Like, so there was the that. Chief, right. 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 Um, but yeah, you're right. I mean, the Harris critique on Biden over race, and remember, this is Biden recently got some negative headlines for praising a couple of segregationist right. senators, saying right. one of them was the meanest guy I've I've ever met. But at least there was some civility. We got some things done. I'm definitely of the of the camp that. A lot of that stuff has been sort of reduced to kind of nuggets on Twitter that are 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 just kind of misleading out of context, really don't kind of give you a sense of what was happening there. On the other hand, you have the fact that Joe Biden has been in American public eye for almost 50 years, almost 50 years. He he was elected in 1972. I was three in 1972. Well, <laughs> you, of course, were not born in 1972. Yep. So that's a long time ago. And I think for people... Um, well, in some ways for anybody, but certainly people who are under 40 or under 30, um, the idea that Joe Biden um, was in the Senate when there were still people in the Senate who, you know, weren't just like kind of like, oh, this uh, this southern senator who, oh, he's terrible on civil rights. These people were sort of the people who defended Jim Crow for decades, right? So the fact that that you had that um, it's very jarring for people that 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 history even comes into contact right. with people who are still running for things. Right. Um, I think that's just. You know, there's all the kind of you know lack in context. Here's the full picture, stuff like that. But that is. For for understandable reasons, for all for the best reasons, that is that's hard to get our heads around. Yeah, absolutely. You know, in the 1970s, the people who were filibustering the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act in in the mid 60s, which kind of you know the the laws that ended Jim Crow, that really ended it. The guys who were filibustering that and writing this thing called the Southern Manifesto and all these kind of things, they're still there. Right. Most of those guys are still in the Senate, <laughs> right? right? Um, and Joe Biden was in the Senate then. Yep. And I think I think there's been, you know, it's been it's there have been various kind of um, stories and memes and hits and stuff like this, kind of like, oh, you know, Joe Biden's best friends who are these segregationists. Well, that, that's not really right. true. But again. It's really jarring, and it it's it is um, it's one of those things that 
if you've been in public life for 50 years, you're, a lot of things are going to be jarring. And that's yeah. not to say, obviously, there, there are people who... Uh, who had different records, but it's still kind of it's 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 uh, it's part of the yeah. Thing. Just to tie back to the imp- the impeachment conversation, I'm curious um, what the next debate, which is at the end of July, will be like. I think Robert Mueller is testifying on July 17th. Oh, right, I want right, to say. Right. I, hadn't, I, I hadn't think a couple weeks together. later right, on right, right. July 30th and the 31st, CNN is hosting the the next presidential debate. Right, so I'm curious. Right, right. Not that I expect Mueller to really go on a, on a limb or kind of reveal anything that's not in the report. Right. It feels like he's going to keep it pretty close to the yeah. the lines of that. But I'm curious if if that will change the tone of the debate when we see our see the candidates again. I yeah, I I do agree that I think it's it'll be hard for it to I I don't think they'll be able to ignore it entirely. And I think that even if like let's say um Let's say it's like a total bust. They bring him up there and he kind of, you know, almost literally will only sort of quote from the report. I mean, I tend to think that even quoting from the report will be a really big deal because the fact is most people have just not read the report or don't even really know what's in there. But let's just kind of uh, sort of stipulate to a hypothetical kind of like, you know, he makes it really boring and kind of nothing happens. I think even that will make it much more present because that will, I think, understandably empower people who say, look, he's not going to impeach himself. You know, (laughs) this is just this sort of national disgrace is kind of, uh, and in this case, I don't mean Trump himself, although he's also a national disgrace, but, but this report, this, these facts are there. And, um, you know, you, uh, Nancy Pelosi, you, Jerry Nadler, you know, thought, this was kind of kind of get a ball rolling and it was going to roll of its own weight and it's not. And so whatever. So I do think it's, um, it's hard for me to imagine that it will be, uh, as unpresent as it, as it was. Although I, I will say that in some ways I, I feel like it was, um, it was kind of refreshing not to hear a lot about Trump, certainly right. on the first night. Right. Um, well, anything you hear from, if you hear from national reporters, people who travel around the country to either flooding zones in the Midwest or, you know, just kind of Rust Belt, just people kind of out in the country doing reporting on various issues, could be politics or just kind of local things. Everyone says you hear nothing about the Mueller report from mm-hmm. these people. I mean, it's just not, it seems like it's not top of mind for most just kind of regular people not in DC, right? New York, right, whatever. Right, right, so, right. well, it's also that you know, I well, it's you know, at some level, it's funny. There are things that there's not always a direct equation between the things that people talk about and the things that are important to them. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so, at some level. People are really focused on healthcare. They're focused on, you know, wealth inequality. They're focused on climate. Um, there, I think people, certainly Democrats, certainly partisan Democrats, care a lot about this stuff. But um, from the vantage point of a president, kind of, what, what, what okay, what is there, what is there to say about it, mm-hmm. right? Um, and you know, uh, you can argue that. Nancy Pelosi's brief was kind of like, all right, we put you guys in to kind of be a counterweight to this guy and you need to deliver. But for the president, you're supposed to deliver by just winning 
and and that is sort of at a certain level nothing to do with the Mueller report mm-hmm. or even impeachment. They're kind of saying, look, have an election. Can you get the guy out? Right. Regardless of 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 anything um, anything he does. But I guess at some level, I I I found it refreshing in the first debate, at least, that kind of like Trump just didn't even come up. Right. It's just it, it, he, he and it, which was weird. And I'm not one of those people kind of like, oh, it's too. It's too upsetting to talk about Trump and right. don't let him like live rent free in our in our in your head and stuff like that. Because I always think that's sort of like I, I think that kind of thinking is a cop out. Because look, we elected him president. And you can say X, Y, and Z, but the fact is he became president, and he's living in our he's he's running things. So yeah. kind of like you can't ignore him. But yep. I still found it kind of. Uh, Kind of refreshing. So here, let me. Uh, speaking of refreshing, let me, let me quickly yeah, exactly. get some business uh, out of the way here. If you're roughing it in the wilderness or traveling to some remote location, finding the perfect cup of iced coffee can be a serious challenge. I actually had this because you know I went, um, I went to Connecticut, uh, to Connecticut. I went to Vermont hmm. uh, over over the uh, weekends, and we actually brought Grady's. To be honest with you, brought brought uh, one of the essentials when you're. Yeah, no, yeah. totally, totally. We're we're uh, as uh, we're dropping off my older son to camp. Uh, but Grady's Cold Brew is there to help. And this is, you know, going off in the wilderness, first part of the ad copy. Grady's reusable all-in-one cold brew kit is ultra light and packs flat, so it's easy to stash in your suitcase or backpack. All you need to do is add water. Tap, bottled, or filtered directly from a mountain stream. No electricity or refrigeration required when, brew, when you brew it this fresh. Each kit makes 36 cup, cups of coffee for only 30 bucks, and shipping is free. Grady's Cold Brew is independently owned and operated in New York City since 2011. Ready to give it a swirl? Get 20% off your first order at Grady'sColdBrew.com. That's Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. Okay, so let's talk to Cass Sunstein uh, about his new book, Impeachment, A Citizen's Guide. Okay, so uh, Cass, welcome to the Josh Marshall Podcast. Thank you so much. Are, are you are you joining us from, are you up in up in Cambridge now? Where are you? Where, where do you have to worry? Yeah. I am in Cambridge, Massachusetts, the land where the American Revolution started. <laughs> So you have you have a new book out called Impeachment: A Citizen's Guide, and this, unlike a lot of books that are out there now, which are which are basically briefs about impeachment with regards to Donald Trump, you're trying to step back and pose the question, and hopefully answer some dimensions of the question of what exactly is impeachment? What is it? What is its role in our constitutional system? What is the history that's behind it? Um, we're going to get into different aspects of that, but what would you say, quick version, what is impeachment for? What, why is it in the Constitution? It's for egregious uh, abuse or misuse of presidential power, and the reason it's there is that the founding generation was very skeptical of a powerful presidency, given the fact that they had recently won their independence against a monarch. And the quid pro quo for having a powerful executive was to create a mechanism by which we the people could get rid of him if he did something egregiously bad in terms of his own authority. Let me ask you, let's step outside the the question of of impeachment for a moment and there's this related issue that there's been this uh department of gen uh department of justice guideline policy for a number of decades 
that basically says that a sitting president should not, cannot uh, be indicted, that uh, they're not above the law, but they would have to be impeached first or, or leave office, and then they can be criminally prosecuted. Do you think that is a is a proper policy and or constitutional understanding? Well, I think the Justice Department on an issue of this kind shouldn't be motivated by policy. It should be a strictly legal judgment. And while reasonable people differ, I do think it is a correct legal judgment, not just reasonable, correct. So, you know, let's have a veil of ignorance. We don't know who the president is. Do we think it's consistent with the constitutional structure to say that some prosecutor can haul her or him off into federal court and say, you've committed a crime? There are two reasons to think that the Constitution doesn't allow that. One is that the structure and language of the impeachment clause is very reasonably read to say, if there's a terrible crime, uh, an impeachable offense, then you impeach him first, and then after that, he can be tried. So the structure of the clause reasonably is taken to mean you can't prosecute him first. Uh, The second reason, which I think is even more fundamental, is that the president has to do a bunch of things, and it's a really demanding job, even if you go on the golf course a lot. And if you're also fending off a federal prosecution, it is an intolerable distraction from what you're supposed to do. The argument I'm making now is structural rather than textural. It's an immunity that's an inference from the constitutional uh, uh, system. And the Supreme Court has recognized immunities as implicit in jobs that federal officials have. And this one seems to me, as the Justice Department says, really compelling. It's one thing to say that the president can be subject to a civil suit, even though that's not entirely clear. The Supreme Court said that uh, risk of a jail sentence or a criminal, uh, you know, criminal prosecution or jury saying you're guilty, that is, uh, would be a massive blow to the president's capacity to do what he's supposed to do, which is to be president. Yeah, I, 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 I tend to agree with that. And my, 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 obviously my, my academic background isn't in constitutional interpretation, but more of just a, a logical understanding or a, or a kind of a, a practical understanding of the sort of the framework of the constitution that the the public has stated it has a profound interest in having this person be the chief executive of the country and to basically put that under threat from i guess conceivably any sort of local da in in you know in the united states just doesn't make sense to me obviously one one can Look at these things differently, depending on you know. Once you know who the, who the, who the president is, let me ask you this though. So, a, a lot of what you're saying here is that when, when you assert these things, it's that there is a there is the text, and there's also the history of the period that makes this seemingly kind of odd phrase, "high crimes and misdemeanors," have a specific meaning, not just what how we you know kind of choose to interpret it. Um, let, let's dig into that a bit about you, you mentioned that the question was was uh, comes up in the 
uh, ratification debates. There's one high-profile impeachment uh, in in the, in Great Britain around this time. A guy named Warren Hastings. Does that does that that's often invoked as a a sort of a contemporary reference? Does that is that relevant? Does that does that elucidate the questions at all? I think it's relevant. I wouldn't give massive weight to it, but the reason it's relevant is that at the Constitutional Convention at a very late stage that that uh, the Constitution just had the words treason and bribery in it, and it was thought that that was you know maybe too narrow. So one of the delegates said that there was terrible misconduct involving mismanagement and corruption by Hastings that was not treason and wasn't bribery. And so it was urged there are great and dangerous offenses that are ought to be taken as a basis for impeachment. And Hastings didn't do that, and maybe Hastings should be impeached, meaning he didn't do treason and bribery, but he did do the great and dangerous offenses. So the debate said, uh, treason and bribery too narrow, look at Hastings, and consider great and dangerous offenses. And the words high crimes and misdemeanors actually emerged from the objection that treason and bribery were too narrow, an objection that went by reference to Hastings in particular. So let me ask you this. What do you, I I was just talking with one of my colleagues uh, a little earlier this afternoon that, and I I have no doubt you know this history, but for listeners who might not, uh, John F. Kennedy's book, I'm not sure how much we still call it his book, but Profiles in Courage, which was this sort of compilation of great moments in American history where people had had these, you know, kind of profiles in courage. And kind of the hero of that is Andrew Johnson, or one of the primary heroes of that, Andrew Johnson, uh, Abraham Lincoln's vice president who became president uh, after Lincoln was assassinated and got into a major uh, constitutional confrontation with the Congress, basically over Reconstruction, was impeached, and, and but not, not convicted. Um, Give us your analysis of that impeachment. Was that what's impeachment? Obviously, his his uh, you know his historical reviews have gone down dramatically since <laughs> since 1960 because of how we see the history of Reconstruction, the Civil War, and so on and so forth. But on the impeachment question, tell us a little bit about that impeachment and whether you think that was what it's there for. Okay, so that was clearly a politically driven impeachment. That is, people thought that Johnson wasn't sufficiently committed to Lincoln's, let's say, Reconstruction agenda. And there was a lot of uh, negativity about him on political grounds. Uh, The major ground for impeachment, that is the major alleged high crime and misdemeanor, was that Johnson fired his Secretary of War, in the face of a uh, statute that prohibited him from doing that. And the statute actually explicitly said if he tries to fire the Secretary of War, that will be an impeachable, that'd be a high crime and misdemeanor under the Constitution. And Johnson said, okay, you say that, I'm still going to fire the guy. He's not the guy I want. And uh, that isn't really a legitimate basis for impeachment. So talk about exactly why. First, and kind of most uh, powerfully, uh, Johnson was right on the constitutional issue, that the president has a right to fire the members of his cabinet 
even if Congress says he doesn't, that the executive power is vested in the president of the United States. And that means those who work for the president at the cabinet level certainly are at-will employees of the president. So Johnson was just exercising his constitutional rights as president, and that can't be an immutable offense. Even if Johnson had been wrong on that issue, and at the time the issue was unresolved, for the president to violate a statute based on a good faith, meaning both believed and not unreasonable view about what his constitutional power is, that can't be an impeachable offense. So Harry Truman seized the steel mills in connection with the Korean War, and the Supreme Court uh, ruled that that was an unlawful exercise of presidential authority. I don't think it would be reasonable to say that Truman could have been impeached for making a mistake of the law, so long as it was reasonable and not an egregious abuse of authority. And it's very hard in the period, I think, to isolate an egregious abuse of authority on Johnson's part that didn't involve, you know, intense political disagreement with Johnson. So, let me ask you. Let me ask you this. Let's let's come up to the to the to the present. One of the big, I would say that uh, the vast majority of President Trump's critics think there are ample grounds in a sort of a logical constitutional sense for, to impeach him. I'm not saying everybody does, but I, I, don't, I don't know a lot of people who are critics of the president who don't think there is uh, certainly ample reasonable grounds to uh, impeach him. There may be factual questions that we disagree over, blah, 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 blah. But one of the things that is one of the arguments that is made is that the House has an affirmative responsibility based on that to impeach him. And that's that's a slightly different question. Does that as a this is, you know, an extra constitutional question or, or maybe it's not. Does does that sound right to you? Is the, is there an obligation, or is this? Uh, does the Congress have a little more, uh, you know, kind of f- flexibilities? Is this just a tool that the Congress has to try to make the government be run as 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 well as possible? Okay, so let's bracket the question whether President Trump committed an impeachable offense and just stipulate that we're not speaking about any particular president. If the president does commit what's clearly an impeachable offense, uh, the best understanding of the document is that the House is obliged to impeach. And I want to say that in a way with caution, because it's an unresolved and in, in one way not clear constitutional issue. But on the other hand, I want to say it with, uh, with you know, as much conviction as I can muster on the following ground. If you read the founding era debates, uh, there was something approaching, you know, terror that the new document was replicating the evils that the American Revolution was thought to avoid. People said that. They said, this is the fetus of monarchy, or this is a system more suited to a monarchy than a republic. That was said by prominent people. And the impeachment clause was meant as a way of saying, absolutely not, that if someone does something that falls within the relevant categories, they're not going to be in any power anymore. And that's completely different from monarchy. In light of all that, and, you know, people died and conquered in Lexington and a lot of other places fighting for these ideals. 
in light of that, if you have a president who did commit treason or did trample on civil liberties and the House of Representatives decided, well, we're kind of like a prosecutor and we can exercise our discretion and say, even though he did these things, he's he's our guy, or even though he did these things, the Senate's not going to convict, or even though he did these things, the American people like him, or even though he did these things, it would actually help his electoral prospects if we impeach him. If the House could think any of those things, then the impeachment mechanism would be gutted. It would become not the uh, safeguard in cases of, you know, atrocious misuse of presidential power, it would become a a political tool to be used or not as uh, politicians making political judgments saw fit. And it's really hard to read the founding era debates to think that that latter understanding would be even minimally tolerable to people who thought they were establishing a republic if you could keep it. Well, let me ask you this, though. It isn't from the, from the perspective of, of people today, and again, let's let's we'll state for the purposes of, of these hypotheticals. Let's say that it, the president has committed offenses that are impeachable offenses, um, separate from the actual, you know, the specifics of, of, of Donald Trump. There are uh, people in the House. I would take the current leadership of the House to be saying, "Look, we're making a prudential judgment here." The country is in a, a, a dangerous situation. We think the best way to save the country, preserve it, whatever, is not to impeach the president. It is to do X and Y and Z and, and try to make sure he doesn't get reelected. Is that that kind of prudential argument doesn't cut it? Well, I think we can take it two different ways. Suppose someone in the House thinks, uh, I don't think the facts here make out an impeachable offense. I read the Mueller report, and I I just don't see uh, either obstruction of justice or um, uh, some other act falling short of obstruction of justice, but it would be a terrible mis... I don't see it. Then it's completely reasonable to say, we're not going to go forward. Or you could read the Mueller report and think, I kind of think there's an impeachable offense, but I think reasonable people can differ. And given the fact that we're in a gray area on the facts, uh, we can't go forward. That That's completely reasonable. But to say that if the judgment is there's clearly an impeachable offense, or if there's sufficient grounds to think that as to trigger an inquiry in the same, than to say this is a prudential judgment is a betrayal of the constitutional plan. So to make that really stark, suppose the president committed treason, or suppose he did conspire criminally with Russia, as he evidently didn't. That was one of the happier conclusions of the Mueller report. Suppose he did. Then in the case of treason or conspiring with another country, it's not very friendly to us to become president. That's a clearly impeachable presence. Uh, actions. And House is not authorized to, to say we're going to consult prudence. That kind of prudential judgment would be uh, constitutionally grotesque. It would be betraying, you know, the, the, the generation and the document that made the United States of America possible. 
Let me, let me let's go back to the to the founding period, and it's kind of a uh, sort of a technical question I, I've been curious about. Uh, their impeachment was something that the founding generation got from their experience being a part of the the Great Britain and its and its uh, North American colonies. So they had a they didn't come up with this out, out of the blue. It was like an existing process and they'd seen it invoked and they'd seen so on and so forth uh but there's a major difference there now obviously the 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 u.s constitution all sorts of federal officials can be impeached we've had uh judges uh be impeached for various kinds of you know they took bribes and stuff like that but in this conversation we're talking about the president and the president is obviously a sui generis figure in the u.s constitutional system now in the in the in in great britain the king does not get impeached. His officials can get impeached. And, and we, we can say that uh, obviously about 100 years, uh, or 125 years earlier, uh, and, and then again, uh, 80 years before, the uh, British had, had either executed or, or uh, kicked out kings, but it wasn't an impeachment process. So it seems to me that it, it, it is a little more uh, it, it's a bit of a it's a bit of a newer thing than we sometimes uh, make it out to be. Now, there are some, you know, there's some history in the colonies and in the sort of the intervening period between the revolution and, and the Constitution. But still, that seems fairly different. Is that am I am, am I, uh, you know, am I off on this or is that does that make the history, the history of precedents a little fuzzier? Uh, here's how I'd put it, that um, before the shots were fired in Lexington and Concord, uh, impeachment had been republicanized, meaning turned into a non-monarchical understanding in the colonies. And to see it through immersion in these dusty materials, it's like your eyes pop. That They were thinking there's this old idea, impeachment, which had fallen into almost complete disuse in England, uh, was uh, revamped in the United States before we were the United States uh, through impeaching the king's agents on the ground that they were uh, abusing their authority. And impeachment became a kind of all-American thing uh, before the battles began. And if you read the Declaration of Independence, it really, I think, is incomprehensible, except against the background of impeachment American style, which it kind of speaks for. And it doesn't matter so much, I think, along this dimension, if we're talking about a president or a lower-level official. That is, the fact that the president is, as you say, unique, is crucial and really important. And it's legitimate to say it's a cautionary note, especially for his political opponents. Still, it's a um, it's a the, the leading symbol for the founding generation of uh, sometimes, as Bob Dylan sang, even the president of the United States must have to stand naked, and that means that the president is uh, the servant of we the people, and if he steps out of line in this relevant way. Um, I'd focus on the American experience, not the British experience. Um, he can be booted. So, an experience in the in the in the colonial period, and again in that in that uh, under the Articles, that is the 
is the stronger historical reference that they're that they're working with when they come up with this system. Completely. So it's, a, so it's a kind of lost part of our history. And as I said, as I was working on the books, this was something chills down my spine stuff, where two things were happening at once. One is that uh, a notion of the equal dignity of human beings was on fire in the colonies, and they called it republicanism. And it was an assault, not just on the king, but any system of kind of status hierarchies that depended on blood. You know, it took, you know, the civil rights movement, the women's movement, and much more to realize some of the things that were uh, uh, going on there. But they were going on there. That's happening at the same time that impeachment is being turned into a weapon of self-government by people who didn't even have self-government. So John Adams was one who said, let's start impeaching people. And sometimes they succeeded in going after the king's agents. Now, the link was completely tight between the idea of the equal dignity of human beings and no status hierarchies, at least not of this size, and the use of the impeachment mechanism. So what was happening in our country, though it used the same term and had the same terms, high crimes and misdemeanors, as uh, England, it, it was a very different framework. It was a framework that came to be, you know, instantiated in the words, we the people, the first words of the Constitution. But that was there, even when we were in the colonies, and the mechanism by which it was there was impeachment. What do you make of this of this quote that is uh, attributed to, well, I think accurately attributed to Ben Franklin, that you have you you need impeachment so that there is an alternative to assassination but basically that which it's it's a it's a dramatic statement but you need a in a non-monarchical system in a non-absolutist system you need a planned rule of law framework for basically deposing the head of state um and to do it in a in a organized and and lawful way that actually that's always been sort of a formative way i've understood why it's there and how and how the process should should operate does that it sounds like that doesn't really kind of cover how you see how you see its role well i think i would be very reluctant to disagree with franklin as on anything. Uh, maybe he didn't know about the Internet, so I can disagree with him on the possibility of the Internet. But on anything about the constitutional structure, he has he comes with a lot of authority. Uh, what he was saying there, he was just making a point, which is that impeachment is a lawful means by which a miscreant can be taken out of office. And he was worried that a terrible mis miscreant might be shot, and this is a safety valve, a nonviolent safety valve. And that clearly was an argument in the founding period, and I think we should, you know, respect it as for itself and also as a, a symbol of what they were talking about. Uh, I would hope that even if the president has committed clearly impeachable offenses, no one's going to shoot him. And if someone wants to, I would hope that the security apparatus would protect him. So, you know, people didn't like President Obama much, a lot of people, millions, and millions don't like President Trump much, and uh, no shooting, no assassinations. Let me ask you this. We're, 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 we're finishing up, and, and in your book, you, uh, I think it's actually, I don't know if it's in the preface or in the very beginning, you say explicitly this is not about whether or not uh, President Trump should or shouldn't be impeached. You're talking about the uh, 
the general question, the general uh, role of impeachment in, in, in the constitutional system. This debate is obviously very enjoined right now about this president. Um, it is a, I would say, a furious debate within the Democratic Party. And I think the debate is largely along the lines of the, that point that I was I was getting at before about an affirmative of responsibility versus part of the tool set that the Congress, or in this case, the House has. With everything that is happening now, what, based on what went into putting together this book, what are people missing? What, what, how does the history inform this present debate, even if you don't want to go to yes or no on, on the big question? I think there's one word that's an answer, and the word is solemn. I think that's the best word we have to describe what people are missing. So many of the president's uh, fans are dismissing uh, the idea of an impeachment inquiry on the ground that he's doing a great job, the economy is flourishing, he's got some great uh, successes in their view on foreign policy, and they're saying this is... You know, this is nuts. And the word solemn is a kind of take a deep breath and think about what the findings of the Mueller report are. That doesn't mean you have to think he's impeachable, but after you take a deep breath and and read or think about it, you'll probably uh, be in the mindset that is uh, more appropriate uh, to what we the people should be trying to be when we think about these issues. On the part of the people who are uh, for impeaching him, it's very disturbed to think a lot of people wanted to impeach President Trump before he was president. They thought, you know, he's terrible, and uh, look at his hair, and he's overweight, and he's reckless, and he's a bully. And No, any of those things might be true, but those aren't impeachable offenses. And some people think he's so terrible on climate change, let's impeach him. I, I don't like his views on climate change, not at all. But that's not impeachable. So the word solemn gets one, I think, in uh, a better mental uh space for thinking about these things. And I guess I think that given the second volume of the Mueller report, uh, what I gather uh, Representative Joe Kennedy has said recently, which is that we have to consider proceedings, I think that that's probably right. And the idea of proceedings has a humility in it. To say the president should be impeached is uh, wildly premature. But to say that this is an issue that has enough uh, size that the issue has to be on the table, and putting it on the table means that there isn't an answer, not close yet. But I think that's that's a completely responsible view. Final question. This goes back to something I was I, I, I asked before when when I said that I thought at least that the vast majority of Democrats think that when you look, especially at the second volume of of the of the Mueller report, that these are definitely things that are the kind of things, you know, there's some factual questions maybe, but these are the kind of things you get impeached for. This is so, this is so clearly probably criminal, certainly misrule, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then I said, you know, you get into this, this prudential argument. Isn't there some level of, 
I would certainly agree, like, if, if the Mueller report had come out and said, in 2015, President Trump had this secret meeting with Vladimir Putin, where in exchange for $500 million, he was going to deliver X, Y, and Z if and when he became president. If that had been the findings of the report, I think you say, look, <laughs> you, you can't, he absolutely has to be impeached no matter what happens, because this is, you know, the, 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 the greatest civic wrong you can almost imagine. Um, but given all of the, the uh, gray areas about what is impeachable, and all of the, all these kind of questions, isn't there some level of a sliding scale when it's considerably less than that and yet still quite a bit more from possibly lying in a civil suit? Isn't there some, isn't there some give there that, give, that gives the, the prudential consideration a little more life when you get it down to specifics? Well, I guess I, I, I think I agree uh, on the general proposition. So if you thought... You know, I'm not clear on the facts, and the, the Constitution is much clearer than in the abstract it might seem. We are in a constitutional gray area. I think to say with Speaker of the House Pelosi that this is a very divisive and kind of uh, nuclear option, uh, and that can be taken into account, I think that's fair. Um, given the Mueller report, and there's no reason why... Republicans and Democrats would have to agree with the Mueller report. They could conclude that the factual findings are actually very weak in terms of impeachability. That's, you know, that's I'm not sure that's the right view at all, but that's within the domain of something that could go through people's heads, or they conclude with the Attorney General that there hasn't been obstruction. But the findings have a sufficient, you know, uh, density to them, if you read the report, that uh, to say, I forget about it, probably not doing your job, to say, oh, let's go forward with impeachment, that's also not doing your job. So there's a big difference between those two approaches and saying, you know, we have to explore what actually happened here. We have a constitutional duty to do that. And prudence doesn't eliminate that constitutional duty. So what I'm saying it has a little bit of a, uh, you know, uh, uh, a thin line here feature, which I don't love, I confess. But it's that impeach him now. No, that's not a good approach. Uh, not even think about it. No, that's not a good approach. Not even think about it on prudential grounds. I think that's not a good approach, given the, uh, as I say, the density of the Mueller report's findings. So to look calmly and with respect and maybe even reverence for the office of the presidency at what actually happened here with a view toward uh, the potential of an impeachment you know, vote, I think that's completely fair. Okay. Uh, Cass Sunstein, thank you so much. You have the, the, the book is out now. It's called Impeachment, A Citizen's Guide. It is uh, what I guess about two-thirds or three-quarters of it is a, a, a book proper. And then you have selections from the Mueller report in the end, which is sort of like, I guess, in a, in a classroom context. Those are the documents <laughs> that you're, yeah, that you're working with in this. Anything else about the book that, that uh, our listeners should, should know? Um, it's a love letter to the United States of America. It's the most important thing I can say about the book.
if you want to know what American exceptionalism is, impeachment is like a door that opens, and then you can see what makes our country unique. Great. Great. Cass, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Pleasure. Okay. I hope you enjoyed that. I I found that... uh, I found that very interesting, and I and I found it, uh, in some ways, a a helpful challenge to some of my own thinking about the mm-hmm. topic. Um, I'm not, yeah, not sure I totally agree, but right. I, but I, I he, he makes a good uh, a, a good case. I mean, I think my my to the extent it matters, my my case or rejoinder would be that point I made at at the uh, at the end, which is that. There is, in the abstract, I think the prudential argument is weak. But in practice, it may not be totally clear cut on the merits. And therefore, you have a kind of a sliding scale of, of uh, prudential considerations when, when, when the factual questions aren't, aren't, uh, aren't 100% clear cut. In any case, uh, give it a read. It's out, uh, it's out in uh, paperback. You know, it's funny. Like, I don't, I don't, um, I was going to say it's out in paperback and hardcover, but I don't really know. I only know that right, I'm holding, I'm holding uh, a paperback copy of it. And again, remember, it, it, it's, a, it's a book, but it also includes uh, big chunks of the Mueller report. So it's got a little, you know, uh, what was it? You know, when you're like in college or whatever, and you get the textbook, and then you get like the document packet, right, right of original documents. So it also includes uh, the uh, portions of the Mueller report and analyses of the uh, Mueller report. So check it out. Uh, one other thing, remember, uh, subscribe to TPM. Subscribe to TPM Prime. Uh, that is how uh, TPM. Uh, functions and TPM uh, runs this podcast. That's that's why we're on the air. So if you enjoy this podcast, please visit our site talkingpointsmemo.com and uh, sign up. Become a member. It's uh, it's it's pretty inexpensive. Four ninety nine a month, fifty dollars a year. And uh, if you're a reader of the site, you can also either join or upgrade if you're already a Prime member to add free. Uh, it's uh, uh, $9.99 or $100 a year, but then you get all the kind of membership stuff and you get zero ads like forever. Uh, so that's awesome too. Anyway, uh, we'll talk to you next week with another edition of the podcast. See you then, Josh. Later. <laughs>